and establishment of capitalist social relations on the islands, starting in 1872. In today's episode, our primary focus is on the history of agrarian class struggles in pre World War II Okinawa, and how the perception of Okinawa as a culturally distinct space, an exotic hinterland, is closely tied. To how capitalism developed unevenly in Japan through the colonization of territories such as Korea, Taiwan, the Ainu Mosir, and the Ryukyu Kingdom in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We discuss how Japan's disposition of the Ryukyu Islands, known in Japanese as Ryukyu Shobun, in 1872, constituted what Marx termed So called primitive accumulation. A violent dispossession and proletarianization of the self sufficient peasantry, which marked the birth of capitalism and its transition from feudalism. While some orthodox Marxists have conceptualized primitive accumulation as an event or singular moment of rapture, others, including Dr. Matsumura, argue that. It is an ongoing process, and that continuous separation of workers, peasants, and indigenous peoples from their lands and means of production is a permanent future of capitalism and a necessary aspect of its reproduction. However, the belatedness of capitalist development in some societies, such as Tsarist Russia, India, China, In Japan, as well as countries of the global south today, compared to England in Marx's time, has also shown that capitalism does not always develop in linear and stadial fashion, and through outright destruction of pre capitalist modes of production. Rather, apparently, pre capitalist modes of production could coexist. Alongside capitalism in some societies. The Ryukyu Kingdom was created through the unification of smaller principalities and kingdoms in 1429. In 1609, the Satsuma Domain, a powerful southwestern domain within the Tokugawa state system, led by Shimazu Yehisa, sent a military expedition. And annexed the kingdom as its subsidiary state. After 1609, the Satsuma domain passed a series of laws to increase its tax revenues by appropriating the Ryukyu peasants' products as tribute, transferring part of the kingdom's subjugated territories to itself, and taking over the power to decide what products could be submitted as tribute. And how assessments will be determined. Brown sugar became a particularly important commodity after 1646, when the kingdom first used it to pay it as part of the debt it owed to the Satsuma domain. While the relationship between the Satsuma domain and the kingdom was far from equal, and based on the subordination of the latter by the former, this relationship Is more semi colonial than colonial, as the Satsuma domain maintained a facade of Ryukyuan independence through a series of cultural policies 
such as a 1613 order that prohibited the Japanization of the Ryukyu's customs and habits. This included a practice called Edonobori, a procession of Ryukyuans dressed in traditional clothes, marching, singing, and dancing in the streets of Edo on their way to pay their respects to the shogun. This was the domain's way of showcasing the Ryukyu kingdom's difference from Japan. But why did the Satsuma domain not openly declare the kingdom as its colony? Because the Ryukyu kingdom was also in a tributary relationship with China in a system known as dual subordination. Since Japan was not officially engaging in any international trade at the time, in a period known as Sakoku, or closed country, formally recognizing the Ryukyu Kingdom's independence outside the Tokugawa state system allowed the domain to engage in trade relations with China, with the kingdom as its proxy. The Edonobori also served the purpose of demonstrating to the Chinese authorities that the Ryukyu Kingdom was not part of Japan, but an independent state. This use of cultural difference to legitimize colonial or semi-colonial rule is a recurring theme of Dr. Matsumura's work and our discussion today. Now, back to the agrarian villages of the kingdom. Since the tribute the kingdom paid to the Satsuma domain was paid in kind, not as money, these goods had to come from somewhere and be produced by someone. Not by the Ryukyuan king or court officials, but the ordinary farmers who worked the kingdom's agricultural lands. The Satsuma domain's subordination of the Ryukyu kingdom in the new configuration of international power relations radically transformed the kingdom-village relations internal to Ryukyuan society, as well as the class relations within the villages themselves. The kingdom did this by granting special privileges to village representatives who initially occupied an ambiguous position both as servants of the state and members of these communities, and traditionally received a portion of village farmlands through a system of periodic land distribution called jibari, alongside their fellow farmers. However, the new arrangement elevated the class position of these representatives by exempting them from tax and tribute payments, allowing them to collect labor and other taxes for personal use, as well as land titles to official lands including newly cultivated lands, in exchange for their monetary contributions to the kingdom. This clientele relationship between the kingdom and the former village representatives, now acting as local officials for the kingdom, made them more politically loyal to the kingdom, while further alienating them from the rest of the communities. As the kingdom sought to pay the debt it owed to the Satsuma domain by increasing agricultural yields and reclaiming more uncultivated lands, these officials amassed more and more lands 
and became large landowners called Uiki. I might be butchering the pronunciation here.、Uh, it's spelled、uh, Romanized as U E E K I. These local officials slash big landlords also acted as usurers who lent money to their struggling neighbors who had to pay two thirds of their produce as taxes each year. As a result of these heavy tax burdens and indebtedness, some of the small farmers were forced to pawn the lands they received through the land redistribution, sell themselves to these landowners, and become serfs. This dramatic class differentiation of the agrarian society led to a mass starvation, which caused the death of 3,358 people in 1820 alone. The desperate situation in the countryside led an Okinawan intellectual, Ihafuyu, to characterize the Ryukyu Shobun of 1872 as quote, a type of liberation from slavery. Unquote. But what actually happened is anything but liberation for the peasants of Okinawa. In 1872, the Meiji state unilaterally declared the creation of Ryukyu Domain. This initiated the colonization of the Ryukyu Islands, known as the Ryukyu Disposition or Ryukyu Shobun, until Japan overthrew King Shotai. And established the Okinawa Prefecture in 1879. Since the Meiji state saw itself as a great modernizer and a harbinger of civilization, you might expect that they would abolish the autocratic feudal system we've been talking about and establish capitalism in its place right away. They did not do that. Instead, they maintained the all power structure. And repurposed it to fit the needs of the emerging capitalist economy in mainland Japan through a policy called the preservation of the old customs policy. This policy selectively maintained the older methods of tax collection and kept former Ryukyu Kingdom officials in power under the banner of cultural preservation. In practice, This policy was an attempt by the Meiji state, as Dr. Matsumura puts it, quote, keep the body of a creature that it had beheaded intact so long as it remained profitable to do so. Unquote. Even though the small peasants became more integrated into the capitalist commodity economy and became vulnerable to its fluctuations, the policy prohibited them. From freely selling their produce in the market. Instead, the state forced the peasants to submit their produce as tax in kind, as they always did, and monopolized its sales. While the peasants became increasingly dependent on usury capital to make ends meet and became further indebted. He also bred corruption among a large number of former kingdom officials. Now acting as local functionaries of the Japanese state, as they were kept economically unproductive, and allowed them to abuse their power to extract more resources from the peasants above and beyond tax requirements. Simultaneously, 
the Meiji state sought to reform certain aspects of the economy and expand sugar production on the islands by loosening restrictions and providing generous subsidies for large scale reclamation projects. In other words, instead of freeing the peasants from slavery and redistributing the lands as Ihafuyu had hoped, the Meiji state simply replaced the Ryukyu kingdom as their new masters, this time in service of global capitalism. Moreover, the unevenness created by Japanese colonialism and the preservation policy became, quote, the Okinawan problem, unquote, an alibi for Japanese politicians and local officials to claim that Okinawans are not ready for change, and the lack of modernity and industrialization in Okinawa was explained away as a product of cultural difference or inferiority inherent to Okinawa. This deliberate and selective preservation of pre capitalist social relations was by no means unique to Okinawa, as Japanese Marxists of the Koza faction observed similar semi feudal conditions in the agrarian villages of mainland Japan, as discussed in one of the previous episodes with Gavin Walker. However, Dr. Matsumura highlights the specifically colonial nature of these policies in Okinawa, as Japan's economic interest in the region was tied to the mass production and export of sugar to aid capitalist development in Japan, and sought to implement a monocultural plantation system seen in other colonies around the world, including Taiwan, which eventually overtook Okinawa as a more profitable sugar colony for Japan. However, as we discuss in this episode, despite pre war Okinawa being Japan's resource colony more or less, the colonization of Okinawa also involved an attempted elimination of Okinawan language, Uchinaguchi, and religious traditions, similar to settler colonialism seen in places such as the US and Canada, and the colonization of Hokkaido. Which makes precise definition of colonialism in Okinawa difficult. Whatever form of colonialism it may have been in Okinawa, it was colonialism nonetheless. Faced with this prospect of becoming a full fledged colony of Japan, the people of Okinawa were by no means passive. However, Dr. Matsumura cautions against totalizing and essentializing all Okinawans as the victims of Japanese colonization. Instead, she calls attention to the class contradictions within Okinawan society and how various class actors responded differently to the threat of colonization and capitalist development by the Japanese state. Intellectuals and aspiring local capitalists, such as aforementioned Ikafuyu, and Ota Chofu emphasized the need to reform old customs and modernize Okinawa. In response to the mainland capital's attempt to building large scale sugar plantations staffed by fully proletarianized agricultural workers, they argued for the creation of medium sized factories, which combined cultivation and manufacture in one locality. 
as well as a prefecture-wide alliance of industrial associations, financed by an agricultural bank. They argued that this arrangement would encourage local peasants to simply submit the produce they cultivate to these factories, without being fully proletarianized. This was their vision of more equitable and peasant-friendly form of capitalism, based on Okinawa Shugi, or Okinawaism, an idea that Okinawans of all classes formed one organic community. However, these economic nationalists were not anti-colonial revolutionaries by any means. Instead of advocating for independence and national liberation from Japan, they called for greater inclusion and assimilation into the Japanese nation-state. They also spoke contemptuously of the peasants and workers whom they claimed to represent, but were not always willing to cooperate with their nationalist project as culturally deficient, unreliable, and sexually promiscuous in case of the women textile workers these men tried to control. According to Dr. Matsumura, these working-class Okinawans, many of them women, did not want to collaborate with these bourgeois nationalists, most of them men, not because they were too uneducated and uncivilized to appreciate their vision, but because they had their own vision of autonomy, even though they might not have been able to articulate it as well as these intellectuals could. We discussed various forms of everyday resistance and refusal they engaged in to contest Japanese colonialism and local capitalist development that did not genuinely include them. Among other topics we discussed in this episode are the ways in which the mass migration of working-class Okinawans due to agrarian poverty caused by colonization and uneven development of capitalism led to the formation of vibrant diasporic Okinawan communities in and outside of Japan, and how this experience shaped their politics, and in some cases radicalized them as Marxists and anarchists, as well as their experience of the atrocities during World War II. We discuss how the post-World War II U.S. occupation normalized capitalist property relations through processes such as the Price Report of 1955, which calculated compensations for the agricultural lands and closed for the construction of the military bases only in monetary terms, but disregarded their use value, cultural significance, and their role in communal social reproduction. We conclude our discussion by talking about the limits of coalition politics in post-war Okinawa and the necessity of global perspective in critiquing and opposing militarism and capitalist imperialism. If you like what you hear in this episode and other episodes, please subscribe to my Patreon and or make one-time donations to my GoGet funding page. Your support will be highly appreciated. Now, thank you for listening to this longer-than-usual introduction. And without further ado, here is an Against Japanism interview 
with Wendy Matsumura. Enjoy. Um, my name is Wendy Matsumura. I work at University of California, San Diego in the history department. Um, I am originally from Honolulu and I did my graduate work at uh, New York University in the history department there. I graduated in 2007. I published this book that we're going to talk about in 2015. And I'm right in the middle of finishing my next manuscript right now. And one of the things that I think I'm going to do in sort of after that is to just try to figure out um, kind of where I'm actually from. Um, so one thing that maybe I haven't shared in writing is that at the time that I wrote Limits of Okinawa, I really didn't know um, my entire family background. And even though I had visited Okinawa as an undergraduate, and as my mother sort of insisted that she told me that I had family in Okinawa, that really was not part of kind of my understanding of myself as a scholar or as a person. Um, and so um, I wonder about what that means, how that impacted sort of my writing practice and sort of what sorts of um, things I need to do now that I'm kind of aware of that. So I'm kind of like working on figuring out how I want to relate to Okinawa um, kind of moving forward. So that's sort of the big kind of life project that I, not life project, that's kind of too much, but like the kind of question I'm thinking through as I think about the latter kind of half of my career. Yeah, that's too much. <laughs> probably. Oh, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. I was actually wondering what your connection yeah. to Okinawa is. And yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I hope you get to learn more about yourself and have a renewed appreciation of your work so far you know your work on okinawa so far and uh yeah so let's talk about your book the limits of okinawa from 2015 and um why did you decide to title the book the limits of okinawa like it made sense for me after reading your book more than once uh twice actually and um but yeah can you tell us why did you title the book yeah, um, I should have actually made it a lot clearer. I don't know why I didn't. Um, but initially, sort of the title really came out of or was sort of a result of thinking with um, David Harvey's The Limits to Capital. Um, and before that, so the dissertation was not called that. The dissertation was called Becoming Okinawan. Um, Japanese capitalism and changing representations of Okinawa. But um, even then, I was really interested in the way that he, so this is David Harvey, as well as other uh, Marxist geographers like Neil Smith, 
um, were sort of thinking about unevenness. So they gave me the language to think about unevennesses within nation states and how those were related to the sort of production of unevennesses between um, kind of nation states and within empires. And so I had done quite a bit of reading on sort of Marxist geography in graduate school. Um, but I had also been doing quite a bit of reading on theories of nationalism. Um, and so as sort of, I was trying to figure out how to transform the dissertation into sort of a book that had a little bit more of kind of a theoretical um, consistency. I guess one of the things that um, kind of I kept returning to was the way that the question of unevenness um, and the production of unevenness within nation states was tied to um, the other question that I was really interested in, which was the rise of fascism. Um, and so as you probably know, um, Harvey's The Limits of Capital was really interested in demonstrating how the production of unevenness was a necessary part of capital self-valorization process. And very early on in that text, he refers to Rosa Luxemburg's The Accumulation of Capital to emphasize the way that accumulation through the exploitation of uh, living labor in the production process um, was very much tied to and not opposed to um, other forms of sort of accumulation through extraction and through dispossession. And so, you know, kind of force and looting. And the sort of main th takeaway that I had from that was that these two sorts of processes, right? So kind of like the actual exploitation and expropriation um, were not things that could be understood in terms of like very distinct chronologically distinct time periods, um, but were kind of organically linked. And this insight has really informed a lot of my work um, thereafter. And so for Harvey, um, because capital tried to really overcome its crises through spatial fixes, of which the underdevelopment of regions was one manifestation, um, all of the sort of spaces, right, that we analyze are sites of instability, contradiction, and class struggle. And so I really wanted in the book to trace the way that Okinawa as a territorially kind of distinct space and its representation as a culturally distinct part of the Japanese nation state emerged as part of sort of a singular process of Japanese imperialism. And so that's where um, the, the title is sort of a reference um, to my indebtedness to that sort of framing. Um, and each of the chapters of the book really sort of focuses on one site of antagonism that results from these ever-changing configurations and thinks about the way that the very idea of Okinawa was fraught and contested, um, even as sort of the category of Okinawa slowly kind of emerges in sort of these contests as a, sort of a concrete, palpable thing that bourgeois intellectuals in particular um, try to mobilize to kind of for their own ends. And so it's kind of both, I guess, um, the sort of 
the limits of, of sort of capital within Okinawa, as well as sort of trying to bring home the point that um, this sort of Okinawa, which also develops from that process, um, was inherently sort of unstable, was constantly contested, and that it's necessary to really sort of keep it that way. And to sort of, to keep it that way because well, when I look at the, the sort of historical actors, they're not all sort of accepting um, this sort of identification or the self-identification or this category of Okinawa um, wholesale. And so it's like, why, why does this thing emerge, right? It's this new category. Why does it sort of, by the time we get to the 1930s, become such... Um, such a fleshed out um, kind of concept and category um, that is available for folks to mobilize. Yeah, what I found interesting about your book is sort of, you know, this critique of cultural nationalism, or if I can say bourgeois nationalism, and Mm -hmm. sort of the idea of Okinawa as sort of homogenous, you know, sort of organic community, right? But actually that, ideology is very specifically comes from uh, specific classes of people, uh, intellectuals and uh, aspiring capitalists. But from that vision, excluded uh, the peasants and workers. So I guess in a sense, sort of the, I was actually (laughs) looking at the, the, the cover art of your book. And I had this book for probably about five years. And I didn't notice until like a few days ago that these are actually Ultraman action figures mm-hmm. forming a circle and they're all facing inward. And uh, it, this is kind of a side note, but I, in my recent visit to, to Japan, I was watching TV and there, the NHK was playing this documentary about Ultraman, you know, the s- superhero uh, fictional sci-fi, very popular in Japan. I grew up watching it. But some of the, the main creators of the show are actually uh, Uchinanchu, like they're from Okinawa. And so they're actually some of the mythology of like Nilai Kanai and Okinawan creation story, right? It's kind of in- mm-hmm. the whole Ultraman narrative, the storyline is in- inspired by that. And, you know, they're, they're here, these like artists, right? They're sort of like intellectuals. And, um, but some of them actually sort of end up kind of getting co-opted into the Japanese a uh, possible imperialist project and they you know they had this expo uh sort of I forgot the name of the events but you know it was sort of like bringing the emperor emperor Hirohito actually in the 70s uh point is that sort of there this representation of um uh intellectuals being brought into the the Japanese imperialist project but also has some contradictions in the narrative like they wanted to represent the Okinawan heritage in the, in this you know, Ultraman, but anyway, it's sort of, it, this is a bit of a tangent, but I thought this was interesting. And, um, do you, like, why did you decide to pick this cover art? Yeah. I mean, I think what's also quite interesting about this cover is that I, I don't know if you can tell, um, but there's actually a mirror. So it's not the full, it's sort of like a half 
circle there. Um, and then the rest is a reflection. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just thought that it was really interesting. So this is not an Okinawan artist, right? And so what you have is a Japanese artist um, who is trying to sort of critique the Japanese nation by sort of using sort of these like ultraman figures who are the product, as you say, of this um yeah, I don't, it's hard to, it's it's really hard for me to talk about um, kind of Okinawan cultural producers and um, artists and poets and intellectuals and things like that in sort of a completely critical manner, um, even though it might appear as though I do in the book, um, because I try really hard, I think, in the way that I, I write about them um, to make sure that sort of it isn't like an easy critique mm -hmm. because it's it's quite easy to sort of take all these figures and to sort of simply say that they are co-opted figures or they were complicit or they were agents of like um, Japanese imperialism or something like that. Um, but what I think is really sort of important to note is that they are sort of operated within sort of a milieu that included other choices where sort of the conditions, you know, were there and other people were making other kinds of critiques that didn't lead to this path of like inclusion or asking for representation or sort of full on like assimilation. And so I think like, and that this is where I think doing the historical analysis is really important because that's where you can show that the critique is not just coming from yourself, right? So like for me, as somebody who's completely sort of um, divorced from that time period or that context, just coming in and saying, look, that's wrong. Um, but rather to show that, yeah, there were actually, you know, really serious debates going on at the time. Um, and there were sort of other possibilities that may not have taken the form of debate, right? If we're talking about like peasant producers who are not engaged in the act of like writing these critiques, right? Or like participating discursively in these debates, but they show sort of other, other sort of paths or other possibilities. And so I think that that's what I try to show. And then I think also, even in the case of um, the post-war sort of intellectuals, you'll see sort of a wide range, right? So across the board, um, you have folks who are really, you know, kind of end up, you know, self-orientalizing, if, if that's the right word. Um, and, or you have folks who really sort of um, become like agents, right, um, for the Japanese regime in terms of saying that, yes, like, you know, um, both like, you know, the base presence is legitimate and, you know, we are Japanese, right? Like that sort of group of people. But then there are others, um, as you know, who are sort of completely um, fighting against that sort of track. And so I think with every sort of time period, it's really important to, to think about and to, to interrogate sort of what was sayable in that moment and to sort of assess people's positions and utterances based on that. Um, 
and then sort of back to this cover art. Um, I don't know. It was just sort of a, a whim. Like I proposed the cover. Um, <laughs> I was like, can we use this art? Um, and then they decided to just to to just take it. But basically, what I wanted to do was to sort of um, take this and to really sort of look at the way. First of all, that this flag, right? So this like imperial flag, you know, looks complete here. Um, but is actually sort of not complete. It's a reflection, um, but also um, to think seriously about um, the way that sort of each of these figures, these little sort of Ultraman figures, um, we have to think about um, not just fascism as sort of uh, sort of top down sort of thing, but something that's instantiated in sort of um, like hearts and minds and to really sort of grapple with that, including, right, even in sort of um, this very complicated figure um, that emerges out of um, kind of a desire to express some sort of particularity um, within sort of um, this increasingly in the post-war period sort of homogenizing notion of of the Japanese nation. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I think there are two themes that emerge from this. You know, one is what you mentioned: contradictions. You know, what uh, Marxists uh, like to call contradictions, complexities. And so, there's various actors, and um, and that's what I also try to highlight in my podcast, right? Because Japan is often presented as, you know, similarly very homogenous, very idealized orientalized entity you know this assumed timelessness and or sort of a hybrid with like hyper modernity and tradition kind of narrative like culturalist explanation of things are they're not at all adequate in understanding uh society and things in historical materialist way and um yeah, like their class struggles and, you know, their classes and nations, you know, oppressed nations, imperialism, colonialism, that really uh, only intensified these contradictions and Japan is not an exception. And I think you do something similar to Okinawa in your work. And the other theme is contingency, right? Like you said, you know, what could history be in of, you know, these actors acted differently or if peasants were more i guess successful in making these demands and i know you critique kind of like um the narrative of of failure like inevitable failure or like if it's not a revolution there's nothing valuable to learn from you know it's only seen as defeat and nothing productive is learned from and and um but yeah that's not true like there's a lot to learn from these struggles of the of the masses and these these uh, uh, oppressed and exploited classes, even though they're not successful in making a revolution, but even in in that defeat is a lesson, right? And um, anyway, it's so, so like contingency, like it's really history is not predetermined, and it's always a sort of like constant process and sort of working through these contradictions and engaging in a class struggle and you know uh, choosing this or that strategy and tactic. And, you know, it, it's really up to us, you know, up to the, um, the present, you know, what we do in the present is uh, what matters. 
yeah, this is a very like long introduction to uh, <laughs> to uh, really like the the, the core of, of your work, uh, your your argument. So um, let's mo- move on to that. And um, yeah, so in the introduction to your book, you refer to uh, documentary filmmaker uh, Kawadoyo's. Uh, his description of Okinawa's so-called reversion, uh, which happened 50 years ago uh, in 1972, he, Kawada, described this as the third disposition that the region has experienced in three and a half centuries, starting in the 17th century, and that each moment of disposition, he describes it as distinct moments of capital's so-called primitive accumulation process. Can you tell us how Marx's theory of primitive accumulation, often understood as an event uh, or a singular moment of rapture that marked the birth of capitalism and transition from feudalism to capitalism? How can this theory help us understand the history of Okinawa and its incorporation into the Japanese nation state and capitalist imperialist world system. Conversely, how can your study of Okinawa help us approach this theory differently? Well, I think um, in terms of what you said, right? So Marxist theory of primitive accumulation often understood as a singular moment of rupture that marked the birth of capitalism and and transition from feudalism to capitalism. Um, I am not sure if it's understood still that way. Um, just, you know, a lot of people, I think, including, you know, someone you had on this podcast, like Ken Kawashima, um, as well as, you know, Alberto Toscano, Cynthia Rusa, Jason Reed, other folks have really been contesting this notion for some time. And, it is true, though, that a lot of the prominent Marxist econo- economists and theoreticians of the time period that I cover in the book, so for them, this sort of stagist idea does prevail. And I think a lot of kind of like what I had to, to sort of work through as I read these scholars, right, who are writing these amazing texts like, you know, Japanese capitalist development, part one, part two, part three, like all these things, right, um, are... <laughs> Um, you know, as well as, you know, I, I've read a lot of Unokozo, for example, um, had to kind of think about or think through um, the way that um, their sort of analyses of Japanese capitalism, the way that they theorize or they periodize it, um, really do sort of adhere to a kind of stagist idea. Um so on the one hand, yes, sort of like the analyses, the dominant analyses do sort of kind of have this model. On the other hand, a lot of people um, who are sort of writing more recently um, about sort of this theory of primitive accumulation have really started to um, complicate this notion of a singular moment of rupture, right? So. I guess for me, like the sort of the thing that I can think to this conversation is that I do think that the concept, right, um, so-called primitive accumulation is a really great way to emphasize um, the sort of violent or forcible or 
kind of more simply colonial aspects of capitalist accumulation. Um, but as someone who is still very much committed to some kind of historical materialist practice, um, praxis, it's really important that in my writing, I resist the notion that this is complete or inevitable. Um, and so I'll give you kind of a concrete example of this. So the period of kind of 1872 to 1879, which is considered the time of the Rikyu Shobun, or I guess in the book, it's translated as disposition. Um, and that wasn't my choice. That was actually an editorial decision that somebody else made. Um, but during this period of Ryukyu Shobun, right, 1872 to 1879, um, which is considered sort of this irreversible moment. This is sort of the moment where, you know, the Japanese um, state comes in, kind of takes the king hostage, annexes, you know, takes over Shuri Castle, all this stuff, right? Um, and transforms Ryukyu Kingdom into Okinawa Prefecture. Um, that's really sort of seen as a time where the kingdom was lost and, you know, the process of incorporating this new sort of Okinawa prefecture into um, the Japanese capitalist regime begins. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, we also know from um, works by historians, all sorts of people like um, Yakabi Osamu is one person who writes about this period. Gabe Masao is another person who I'm really indebted to that writes about this period. But from their sort of historical works, we know that things were not completely settled at all in terms of the former kingdom's um, position vis-a-vis -vis the Japanese um, nation state slash empire, at least into the late 1880s. Um, people, so it, elites as well as other folks, refused this imposition of Japanese rule in a way that's really easy to dismiss if we know the outcome, um, but shouldn't be dismissed if we are historical materialists. Um, and you know, even though sort of the the sort of Yakabi and Gabe are both sort of interested in really talking about elites and the way that Riku Kingdom elites um, kind of look to the Qing, for example, or, you know, kind of are trying to sort of figure out ways to maintain some sort of autonomy, even after um, the prefecture is sort of declared, right, or in established. Um, I think that for me, the interesting point is that as a result of this kind of refusal that remains um, and sort of attempts to look elsewhere to, to sort of figure out a better um, kind of arrangement for um, the former kingdom, we have sort of the Meiji regime not being able to actually enact um, what it wants to enact in the prefecture for a particular moment. So, for example, I think in many cases, like um, the belatedness or the lateness of the Meiji state's enactment of something like the land tax reforms, which is essential, right? Sort of the necessary thing in order to establish private property relations in Japan, which is sort of the prerequisite for the establishment of capitalist social relations in Japan. Um, people say that, well, this happened, began in 1873 in mainland Japan, but it didn't commence until 1899 in Okinawa. And so that's sort of seen as sort of a um, evidence of some sort of like 
unequal imposition, right, sort of enactment of a policy that's good um, in the context of Okinawa. However, if we think about this in the sort of context of all of these antagonisms that are going on in Okinawa, even after um, the establishment of the prefecture, we can see that the state was not allowed, was not able to actually enact this in Okinawa after sort of a period of preparation because political conditions did not allow it. Um, And so, I mean, like, so, so it's sort of easy to say, well, it happened anyway, and it happened late, and it happened sort of in a way that was worse for Okinawa. Yes, we can certainly say that. But I think it's really important to note that, you know, kind of, we shouldn't sort of accept that that wasn't the result of like serious, serious confrontation and serious, I guess, conflict and and sort of a lack of acceptance of of what was imposed. Um, yeah, it wasn't I, I simply sort there. of like yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't simply like you know Okinawa the victim, right, and Japan the colonizer. I mean, there was definitely certainly like Okinawa was made into a, some 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 form of colony. Yeah. of a Japanese uh, imperialism, but there was a very complex process of struggle happening even inside Okinawa, formerly Yuku Kingdom. And um, also even, you know, within the uh, Okinawan elites as well, the ruling class, right? Like, you know, yeah. even as a Marxist, the ruling class is not a sort of monolithic entity, right? Like they don't always act unified and, you know, there's mm-hmm. struggle inside, you know, intra-class uh conflict as well and that's sort of what, what i talked with uh tatiana linkova uh in regards to the mm-hmm. russell japanese uh, relations and in the early 20th century but yeah in this case you know you talk about how uh conflict between china and japan at the time and how you know okinawa was under so-called dual subordination and you know they had tributary relations both china and uh japan and yeah and you know the major state really didn't like that you know they really wanted to sort of okinawa to be severed from china they wanted to cut ties with china and sort of that external factors like playing into the uh how okinawan society uh became constituted and you know the first disposition you refer to in the was it in the 17th century um is you know it really radically changed the class relations in Okinawa because of these the trade relations they have uh, uh, they became annexed to Shimazu domain right and in that was one of the domains of the, the feudal uh, Tokugawa Japan and and the economy had to be reoriented reoriented towards export of uh, sugar brown sugar and uh, it basically led to sort of creation of plantations right something like that and serfdom based on serfdom and uh self-sufficient farmers smallholders or became became serfs and this really violent uh, system of taxation and sort of established as pre-capitalist feudal relations um and even after that, right, the major restoration and there's like the encroachment of Western imperialist powers and and that sort of also reflected in, you know, the how what happened in Okinawa as well internally. So the sort of like dialectic between internal and external factors is really important here. And um yeah, also like unevenness, right? That's the 
belatedness is um, is also another uh, important factor. So that brings us to the the so-called preservation policy. It's called the preservation of old customs policy, uh, which was enacted by the Meiji state, imposed on Okinawa in 1879. Can you tell us about the significance of the preservation of old custom policies of the Meiji state? And how did the question of culture and custom continue to play an important role in the class struggles between the ruling classes and the peasants in Okinawa? They are the actors who are often ex excluded from the nationalist narrative of Okinawa. Uh, so the struggles between these, these classes as well as their competing visions of autonomy. Uh, can you give specific examples from your book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, um, the preservation policy is such an interesting one. It's such a um, kind of cunning, <laughs> I don't know, um, policy sort of in its naming. And it was basically um, the policy that guided the Meiji regime's overall stance towards policy stance toward Okinawa from 1879, um, when it established Okinawa Prefecture until the late 1890s, um, when the, the sort of land reorganization project commences. And so it was basically a stance that stated that the state would preserve Okinawa's existing policies in order to avoid the chaos that they thought would accompany a complete transformation of forms. So that was sort of the rationale behind sort of this policy. And, you know, to some extent, I think that is true. But above all, it was a colonial policy that I think tried to garner the consent of some local elite by keeping intact some of the practices um, that were then sort of called custom, right, um, or culture that would allow for a smooth transition um, from the kingdom to the Meiji state regime, while at the same time, you know, kind of laying the groundwork for the assimilation of Okinawa into Meiji society. And I think that, you know, when I say that it's cunning, right? So it's really difficult to pinpoint, I think as a colonial policy at first glance, and I don't think I use that word in the book, um, but it is quite difficult because we know that, you know, in terms of the Meiji state's um, policies um, towards mainland Japan, it also left room within the civil code, for example, for things like internal laws and customs to play guiding roles in mainland prefectures in some aspects. So where this comes through most clearly, um, for example, is in sort of the way that um, communities, uh, at least until the 1920s, uh, manage their communal lands. And so this idea that sort of internal laws and customs and consensus would prevail in sort of figuring out how communal lands would be managed. That's a provision that um, the Meiji state extended in mainland Japan as well. And so when you're trying to sort of think about the preservation of old custom policy in Okinawa in relation to what's going on in the mainland, there are sort of aspects that look comparable. 
And so it's quite difficult, you know, then to sort of say, well, in Okinawa, this one was colonial, whereas in sort of mainland Japan, it was just sort of a process of like, you know, transforming this into sort of a modern society. Um, so, however, I think sort of within Okinawa, there was a, if we sort of take a look at like what came under sort of the, the thing that could be transformed and things that had to be preserved, what becomes quite clear is that the Meiji regime was very eager to, um, to enact some transformations that would essentially sort of make Okinawa available or Okinawan sugar available um, for sort of for more development into sort of a cash crop. And this was something that the Meiji state really sort of needed um, from Okinawa, probably the only thing that the Meiji state at this point needed from Okinawa um, in order to alleviate its balance of trade deficit. And so this is something that Kinjo Isao talks about um, in his book on Okinawan sugar in the Meiji period. Um, but I do think that if we pay attention to sort of like what's actually transformed dramatically um, and what is actually preserved, um, what we see is that the stuff that's per preserved are things that um, sort of maintain or sort of grant um, already sort of existing local elite um, administrative sort of power in a really limited sense, while at the same time enacting policies that facilitate the transformation of um, sugar producing regions into regions that can produce for sort of, you know, even greater, even greater quantities sort of as, as sort of um, exports. So that's sort of what I see um, happening in terms of the preservation policy. And then in terms of like how this policy was received, I don't think that because it's so early. So this is like, you know, kind of from the late 1870s into like the following decades. And it wasn't really sort of something that was um, constantly invoked. It's sort of a policy that existed and then sort of singular policies right, um, for the administrative system, for land, for taxation, for other things um, were sort of enacted separately. I don't think there is sort of a concerted um, pushback or critique of this, this thing called, you know, Kyukans on Seisaku. However, you know, even in the 1880s and 1890s, there are sort of really significant disagreements especially, um, well, two axes. One sort of um, within elites who are kind of still, you know, you have sort of people who accept Japanese rule and people who want to still sort of have some faith in, in the Qing, um, not because they're loyal to the Qing, but because they believe that, again, the system of dual subordination is something that can actually kind of preserve some sort of autonomy for their ability to rule. And so you have that set of sort of conversations going on. But you also have, um, beginning in the early 1890s, is you do have, and this is, I think, um, what I talk about in 
the chapter on the Miyako Island peasantry movement, but you do also have, you know, kind of people who begin to call for an end to kind of the old sort of power structures um, because they are not really allowing people <laughs> um, to actually survive because on the one hand, you have these old sort of land policies. Um, and on the other hand, you're starting to see some increased tax requirements, requirements that sort of ask people to pay taxes in cash as opposed to in kind. And that's becoming really, really difficult for people to actually fulfill because you know, the sort of policies as they stand are not sort of allowing people to garner the kind of cash income that they need in order to really fulfill their tax obligations. And so that begins a broader conversation about um, the need to really sort of um, modernize, right, or sort of develop existing systems of land and taxation, or not taxation, of, of sort of land ownership. And so, yeah, like, again, there's all sorts of things going on. But I think that that language of preservation of old customs and the way that it does kind of map on really weirdly well um, to the Meiji government's policies in agrarian villages in mainland Japan really make it hard to critique it as colonial. Yeah. I think there's something that tells us, you know, not just about Okinawa and Japan, but Marxist analysis in general, right? Like how um, capitalism represented by the major state, it's seen often seen as sort of the great modernizer and, you know, this great transformation and, you know, everyone becomes proletarianized and, you know, that, and then, you know, there's a really clear cut transition from feudalism to capitalism but it's not as simple as that, you know, oftentimes capitalism preserves some of the old relations of production. And I know this is a very loaded term, uh, especially among Japanese Marxists, the semi-feudalism, right? Um, and, you know, some of them thought that the countryside of the mainland Japan is also semi-feudal, you know, like the some of the old relations of production are preserved uh, or like backward you know so remnants of feudalism yeah. and um yeah i mean this is also like still happening today in the global south like uh, in the philippines there's definitely some preservation of the old landlordism and uh, agrarian uh relations of production that are uh, seemingly pre-capitalist right so um but actually that it does benefit the monopoly capital like the big capital uh, of the global north or you know in, in the case of 19th century japan sort of this developing urban-based uh, finance capital and uh yeah sort of emerging japanese capitalist imperialism and even that like even the intel period is a sort of like really intense semi-slavery exploitation happening in the colonies as well um uh, mark driscoll talks about it and his book about Montreal, northeastern China. Uh, anyways, yeah. So like, yeah, there's, there's definitely unevenness is really inherent to capitalism. Uh, and you know, I don't. 
think the debate is over yet. But yeah, it, it's fair, safe to say that it's sort of like simplistic modernization theory. I think it's really important to distinguish Marxism from modernization theory, right? Because lots of the sort of like revisionist idea of like progress and, you know, sort of the theological perspective of like developing the productive forces and technologies and uh, new and new means of production, it, you know, it's good for everyone kind of thing. You know, it's not really it is class struggle. Like it is the open-endedness of the class struggle and also the sort of the complexity of how, you know, unevenness is, is, is used by the ruling class to advance exploitation. Um, anyways, uh, do you have any comments on that? Um, sorry, you cut out a little bit. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so yeah. I heard, I, I didn't hear like the, the middle part of before you, before you concluded. Um, but I think one thing, you know, that, that I might say that's kind of related to all this is that, you know, I think when we, when we're thinking about sort of, um, Okinawa in this period, and even sort of that language of preservations in this period. Um, it's really, I think, I didn't do it in the book, but I think it's really important um, to think about it really in relation to um, Hokkaido um, and what's happening there in a very, very similar time period, right? A little bit earlier, but you know, we're talking years, not like decades earlier. Um, and the kind of uh, very old kind of debate about like what do we call Okinawa, right? Like, is it a colony? Is it not? Is it an internal colony? Is it what, right? Like that sort of debate sort of took place, but then was very kind of quickly abandoned. Um, but one of the sort of things that always ends up happening within that debate is that there is this comparison to Okinawa. I mean, not to Okinawa to Hokkaido, and you know the conclusion is usually well, Hokkaido is very different from Okinawa. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, that that's given is that you don't see um, the kind of, it's not even talking about genocide, actually, right? It's about you don't actually see um, the large scale kind of capitalist development that happens in Hokkaido um, happening in Okinawa. And so even though we can talk about Hokkaido, as an colony, and this is something that many people have critiqued, right? Even that characterization, um, you don't see that in Okinawa, and the the reason given is really interesting, right? It's that well, in Okinawa, you know, there wasn't actually that much, right, um, that the state benefited from. And so whereas Hokkaido had all this fertile land, had all of sort of like, you know, this opportunity to establish like large ranches and farms and things like that, there's a lot of like extraction um, that could happen in Hokkaido. You don't see that similar kind of intensity in Okinawa. And so therefore, right, you know, it's sort of the, the sort of conclusion becomes that it sort of wasn't as bad. And so the question of like colonization or like what to call this doesn't really matter. And that was sort of where the, the debate had ended really um, as I was writing my book, as, or as, as I was sort of completing the dissertation and writing the book. And I think, you know, even... Yeah, like even something like the preservations 
policy, right? Become seen or sort of like added to the evidence, right? That, well, at least, you know, you did have sort of not complete destruction from the very beginning, <laughs> just such a weird thing to say. Um, and, you know, indeed, one of the things that, you know, kind of I did have to think about is, okay, so we're talking about a place like Okinawa, where, you know, initially the Meiji state was interested in sort of Okinawa, you know, kind of both for consolidating national boundaries vis-a-vis sort of um, other sort of states in Northeast Asia, but also really sort of in order to make sure that it becomes part of Japan vis-a-vis, you know, like places like the U.S. Um, You also have this sort of, you know, initially Okinawa sugar was important. However, you know, with the sort of acquisition of Taiwan and sort of the ability of um, Japanese capitals to enter into Taiwan um, more aggressively than in Okinawa, Okinawa becomes less important and sort of in terms of the extraction of sugar. So even though you do see attempts by um, mainland Japanese capital to enter into Okinawa and to transform um, you know, kind of producers there into raw, raw sugar producers, you don't see the kind of establishment of like these big plantation sort of um, economies that you see elsewhere. And so there again, right, it becomes, well, then what is Okinawa for, right? So if, if we're talking about sort of the value, right, of sort of Okinawa, um, the sort of economic value of its commodities, then sort of, again, there is sort of this weird way that, you know, there's calculations, right? Well, not as extractive as you see in Taiwan, not as extractive, not as widespread as you see in Hokkaido, not as valuable as in these other places, not as violent, right? Like all of these sort of things um, are kind of in the background as people are sort of thinking about Okinawa's position vis-a-vis the Japanese nation state and empire. And I think that it's really important um, to to resist that kind of like quantification um, that takes place. And the the question is, okay, so how how do we write against that? And you know, I mean, the answer is pretty easy when you take a look at sort of what happens to Okinawa um, with. For example, the Battle of Okinawa, right, or what happens after surrender, and what's currently sort of happening right now. Um, but the balance of like how to, so this is just my question, right? But like how to sort of keep that stuff in the background as informing the need to have this analysis, while at the same time wanting to really sort of engage these moments on their own terms, is is a pretty difficult um, kind of thing to do as a historian that's too much probably (laughs) yeah um (laughs) yeah there's uh, a lot to unpack for sure and um yeah um, you can skip it you can you can you can uh, you can get rid of it (laughs) (laughs) um yeah overall though like you know we've been talking about sort of like how sort of the, the ruling class strategies right like in day uh didn't outright colonize okinawa perhaps maybe you can call it like semi-colonialism or 
you know, they really wanted to sort of preserve the distinctness and sort of cultural difference or even facade of independence, right? Like compared to, I think, outright settler colonization of Hokkaido. Uh, do you think that's a helpful distinction there? I would say it's colonialism. Yeah. Um, would you call Okinawa a settler colony or something else? Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I'm just trying to like, I'm just trying to think through, okay, is this, you know, like the, the helpfulness of the distinction between settler colonialism and colonialism. But I do think that if, okay, so if we are, talking about, you know, the, the sort of um, aspiration or sort of the project to eliminate peoples and cultures, right? And sort of the, the replacement of that with another. Um, I think it's very hard to deny that that didn't happen. Um, because if, and, and this is something that I think was very much under acknowledged in my book. Um, but, you know, if I, if you think about, you know, the way that, um, you know, language policies, for example, were enacted in Okinawa, um, the sort of, you know, educational system, for example, um, was established in Okinawa, the way that you, you have on the one hand, um, you have a very selective um, valorization or fetishization of certain kinds of cultural and spiritual, sorry, it's my dog, or religious practice in Okinawa. Um, maybe, yeah, power speak, maybe we can take a break and come back. Rosa. She's not gonna stop. Oh, that's okay. You can, you can I think there's, it. I think there's somebody at the door or like okay. walking past. <laughs> hey, Rosa, come here. Good girl. Okay. Um. Okay. I can. I can continue. So. 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 If we talk about. Oh no. <laughs> uh, Rosa. If you need to go walk her, we can maybe like take a five minute or ten minute break and come back. Or okay, yeah, let's do that. So okay. uh, five minutes ish. Okay, maybe seven minutes. Let's go downstairs. Okay. Okay, take your time. Okay, I'll see you soon. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, Okay. okay, so we were talking about settler colonialism, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so you asked um, whether or not I would characterize Okinawa as a Japanese settler colony. Is that right? Yeah, what Something kind of colony like is Okinawa? Like, what we didn't appropriate characterization, right? I mean, we definitely, yeah. like you said earlier, we want to avoid that it's not, you know, it's not as bad as, you know, insert wherever else right like Hokkaido right. or Korea um yeah I mean I guess for me I would instead of thinking about it in sort of distinction to a place like Hokkaido 
um, I would want to think about it alongside um, a place like Hokkaido in the sense that even though, um, you know, the, the language is different, right? So for um, Hokkaido, it was, you know, colonization development, right? Like that was the language that was used in Okinawa. I think the language that was used was more incorporation. It was about the consolidation of national territory. It was about protecting the rights of um, subjects when the Japanese, uh, when the Meiji regime, um, for example, um, sort of embarked in an expedition to Taiwan in order to protect um, kind of shipwrecked um, fisher people um, of the Ryukyu Kingdom in order to assert its claims over the right, you know, kind of over over sort of um, Ryukyuans as, as Japanese subjects. It also, instead of, let's say, the language of protection um, that it used in Hokkaido in the late 1890s, Okinawa was governed by this sort of language of preservation of customs. Um, so even though we do see a lot of like important differences, um, both discursively as well as sort of in policy, I think it's more useful to talk about Okinawa as also um, kind of being subject to the same kinds of violent um, processes that we see in Hokkaido. So things that I think were underemphasized in my book, for example, you know, the importance of talking about um, the destruction of language, for example, through the enactment of um, compulsory education system in Okinawa, um, leading later to prohibition, right, of the use of Okinawan language um, in both sort of schools and in private. This is more sort of during the 1930s and 1940s. Um, also, the um, kind of complete transformation um, in the administrative system that not only eventually sort of, um, you know, kind of wedded Okinawan governance to the central government in a very significant way, but also destroyed um, the authority of existing uh, figures like the Noro, for example, right? The way that um, there is selective appropriation of Okinawan religion or spirituality um, in ways that talked about um, these practices and beliefs as, you know, kind of originally part of Japan than its own sort of um, kind of systems of belief. Um, and so there are all these ways that whether it's through like appropriation, whether it's through um, complete destruction, or whether it's, um, you know, through kind of, I don't know, like benign neglect, um, you do see the way that um, the, the Meiji state and then subsequent sort of regimes after that were really really thinking about um, Okinawa and Okinawans as targets of expropriation and exploitation rather than anything else. Um, and in those ways, it's really not all that different um, from uh, kind of Meiji policies um, 
towards the Ainu, for example, in the northern part of Japan. Yeah. Now this becomes very obvious, you know, like when we get into the 30s and 40s, but I do think it's important to um, talk about, you know, kind of how these processes were enacted from much earlier on than, than that period of uh, total war mobilization. Yeah, it was again way of sort of they did this through preserving old relations of production and this really like pre-capitalist cohesive methods of tax extraction and you know limiting the mobility of the the, the peasants, you know, and whole set of customary practices, so-called customary practices that are supposedly abolished in the mainland. Um Japan and sort of yeah, it created this artificial unevenness between the mainland and Okinawa. And there are various actors who resisted it, like sort of this emerging bourgeoisie, right? The intellectuals who saw themselves as like modernizers. And um perhaps we can start with this group of people. Like, can you describe uh who they are and what they try to do and what their limits were. Sure. I think the one that sort of emerges as sort of this quintessential figure in my book um, is Ota Chofu. And I talk about Ota, let's see, I think in the oh, couple of chapters, maybe three and four. Um, and then the other one um, is somebody that I think is much more well-known, um, Ihafuyu, um, who I talk about a little bit in chapter four. But I, I think one of the um, things to note about somebody like Ota Chofu, um, as well as Iha, is that they weren't uncomplicated figures, um, by which I mean, I think that um, one of the things, for example, that comes through very clearly when we read Ulta's writings is that he was very concerned about um, the way or the potential for Okinawa to become right a site of sort of unfettered extraction as he sort of understood what was happening let's say, in Taiwan. And so it wasn't that he was espousing sort of this idea of economic nationalism because he wanted to enrich himself, right, necessarily. Um, but I do think that he was really concerned that um, the policies of the Japanese state were going to enable Japanese or mainland Japanese capital to come in and to really sort of turn Okinawa into an extractive colony. And so what he wanted to do was to take kind of a middle ground in the sense that he wasn't anti-capitalist by any means, um, but he wanted to propose a plan for development that would kind of keep profits in Okinawa, if that makes sense. And he also wanted a system, uh, wanted to propose something where um, Okinawa's small producers would not be transformed into kind of agricultural proletariat, 
So he didn't want people to just become raw material producers. He wanted in some sense to, to preserve um, the sort of small farm structure, but improve it in a way that would still allow um, Okinawa to um, survive, right? Within sort of a capitalist world um, where the production, right, of, of sort of cash crops, you know, he saw to be inevitable. And so I think that's a really important point to first kind of lay out. Um, what, what I problematize in the book is really the way that vision that he had really sort of um, resulted in he and others who were kind of involved in sort of commercial circles within Okinawa to really accept or, or to, to sort of devalue um, the knowledge and the practices of people who were actually engaged in these processes. So not only sort of specifically um, small peasantry, who I talk about, but also, you know, he was really um, disparaging of, you know, people like women weavers and women sort of merchants who had been kind of really important parts of the economy of the Ryukyu kingdom, um, who really sort of had the kind of knowledge um, who were the backbone in many ways of sort of the kingdom economy, but who became sort of in his eyes and in the eyes of other kind of of these economic nationalists that I talk about, um, really unruly figures who were standing in the way of the kind of development that he wanted. And so a lot of kind of what ended up happening was policing of their practices, um, establishing systems like, you know, quality control systems, for example, um, that tried to sort of take away any sort of room for um, these merchants and these weavers to do things autonomously. And so that's that's where kind of a lot of the conflict um, kind of emerges in in this book. Yeah, I think it's also important to emphasize that these figures, they were not like anti-colonial mm-hmm. nationalists either. They were more or less calling for inclusion in the Japanese nation state, not yep. like independence, right? So um, they were pro-capitalist, but also somewhat sort of i think that uh it kind of reading it made me think of so Kai that uh, ken kawashima talks about in addition to mm-hmm. uh korean migrants in into japan and they wanted to sort of mutual like a sort of reconciliation uh but in a more sort of a humane more you know equitable way and whereas like the japanese monopoly capital or sugar capital they would have happy to see like for proletarianization of peasants, but they're more or less sort of presenting different visions of capitalism. Uh, whereas uh, the peasants are sort of different visions. Um, uh, can you talk about how the peasants resisted uh, this sort of bourgeois nationalist sort of imposition of where Okinawa should go, you know, the future of Okinawa? How did they struggle against that? Perhaps you can tell us about 
uh, their movements? Yeah, sure. I think I talk about this most sort of directly in uh, the chapter chapter four, um, which is the impossibility of plantation sugar um, in Okinawa. And I guess I will say that um, kind of this kind of um, collective organization or mobilization against what is sort of mainland Japanese sugar capital um, doesn't begin until towards the end of World War I. And the reason for that really is because that's really when Japanese mainland sugar capital enters into Okinawa um, in any sort of in any sort of significant way with the Tainan Sha and others, um, or Tainan Seito and others. Um, and in many ways, sort of the conflicts that you know we talk about in terms of like Ota Chofu, for example, and then Jahana Nobudur happening a little bit earlier than that even though Ota is writing into the 1920s where, or in 1930s. Um, but basically what we see um, quite early on, so immediately sort of following the entry of mainland Japanese sugar capital into Okinawa, we do start to see um, the organization of um, groups against it. Um, and what's quite challenging um, in terms of talking about this as resistance is that I don't know if that is that is actually the right word um, because in the beginning, so when we're talking about sort of small farmers and small producers who are um, sort of in antagonistic relation to mainland Japanese capital, um, it sort of begins or takes the form in many cases of what some people might call kind of a passive um, kind of resistance or refusal. So something, for example, that I talk about is the organization of a non-selling alliance. Right. So this idea that, okay, so at this point, um, we still have options, right? Meaning that there is a choice to continue to produce, um, you know, in a way that is is actually about um, kind of the production of brown sugar. So beginning from cultivation all the way into um, the sort of manufacture of brown sugar as a completed product, right? We have that option or... Um, the other option is for us to submit our cane, like our raw material cane that we cultivated um, to a large sugar company or a sugar factory, which then sort of goes on to process that sugar into whether it's like more sort of refined or sort of more processed brown sugar or white sugar. Um, and, you know, at this point, what ends up happening is that in response to the lowering of prices, right? Um, the, the lowering of um, sort of what they would receive from the sugar company, um, they decided to not sell, to organize these um, non-selling alliances. And so the first one of these really takes place kind of in the later part of 1916 um, and continues 
actually, you know, against sort of different companies that enter into Okinawa that try to, um, you know, reduce the, the payments for raw material gain. Um, and what I think is really important about these sort of, you know, kind of small scale kind of like non-selling alliances is that they do kind of become models for each other. And they also sort of are examples of the way that um, these sort of village communities um, are thinking in ways that extend beyond sort of kind of a profit question. And so I think that um, what we see is that it's not just about sort of this one announcement of this one sort of um, change in price or change in payout. It is really about thinking through the consequences of what this kind of transformation of their own sort of production processes from being kind of like producing the whole product, right? Versus um, just becoming raw material king producers um, would bring to, to their village societies. And that's sort of part of their calculation as to why they decide to refuse to submit their king. And those examples then later on kind of merge with or yeah, sort of merge at some points, right? Um, with more kind of like worker um, or more kind of like worker movements that resist, for example, the kinds of pay that the sugar companies are paying out to, to workers to build factories. And so they're not sort of together from the beginning, but we do see sort of beginning in like the late 19 or like beginning in 1916, 1917, and then through like 1930, 1931, we do see sort of the expansion and the merging of these different forms of struggles, all centered around um, Japanese sugar capital or fighting against um, kind of Japanese sugar capital. At the same time that they are still submitting king to these to these to these factories right so it's not sort of an outright kind of or sustained sort of resistance or refusal but we do see these interesting ways that these different sorts of battles um converge at some some moments and then cease in others yeah production of sugar was really a huge aspect of the the struggle even though sort of like not like i outright explosion of you know sort of militant confrontation but sort of more mm -hmm. subtle form of everyday resistance so to speak um but you alluded earlier to to the woman weavers right mm -hmm. uh textile production was was uh, an important aspect of the economy in okinawa at the time and you know they're working in a very oppressive conditions you know sort of the impact of the the preservation policies felt mm -hmm. strongly here and these officials bureaucrats really abusing their power um against these women and you know they try to sort of micromanage their their sexuality can you tell us about that aspect of the agrarian struggle in okinawa mm -hmm. yeah there isn't really a lot of work i think on sort of the confrontations i think within the textile industry in okinawa um, I try to sort of 
find those, <laughs> find those moments. And it was pretty difficult um, because I think the only sort of um, materials that I had were like newspapers um, at the time. Um, however, what, and so maybe this is sort of a, a sort of recurring theme in the book, but one of the things that I see happening in Okinawa in the textile industry, as well as in the sugar industry, is that the sort of inability of mainland capital to get workers to work in the way that they wanted, in a way that would actually be super profitable was one of the reasons I think that you don't see um, kind of the full scale kind of, you know, kind of entry of these capitals into Okinawa. And, you know, this is sort of um, contrasted, for example, sort of, or we see sort of language like this that suggests this in the documents that say things like, well, you know, we aren't able to force Okinawans as we can in insert X colony, right? Whether it's Taiwan or Korea um, to get them to do these things. So we can't force them in this way. So it's probably cheaper um, and easier to kind of enact or to sort of like establish capitalist industry in these other spaces. Um, one of the things that I don't think we should forget when it comes to sort of the textile industry is that even though sort of the textile industry in Okinawa does remain quite like unmechanized, if that's the right way to put it, um, you do still have, you know, kind of Okinawan textiles being valorized, right, um, as this really sort of special, unique sort of commodity um, that becomes sort of a specialty of Okinawa. Um, what we also see is that attempts to sort of mechanize that process um, aren't really all that successful in the context of Okinawa. Um, but a lot of um, Okinawan women, um, you know, especially sort of from the 1910s, are working in textile industries that are mechanized in mainland Japan. And so there's a sort of a book called, um, it's called Okinawa Jokoshi or something really like straightforward like that. But you do see a lot of um, testimonies by Okinawan women who were forced um, due to sort of their family circumstances to, to go to places like Osaka or Tokyo or Kanagawa or Wakayama or wherever, right, to work in the textile factories there. And so, you know, whereas sort of um, you don't see it taking root in sort of that large scale way in Okinawa, um, you do see quite a bit of um, women um, moving to the mainland in order to um, work under extremely discriminatory <laughs> conditions in mainland um, spinning and weaving um, factories. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing I'll say is that, you know, in terms of textile production or in terms of like women's work in general um, within Okinawa, 
um, what ends up happening is that um, whether it's textile production, whether it's hat production, um, whether it's working in um, the market, for example, um, all of those things become viewed with a lot of suspicion and conflated in many ways um, with uh, sex work. And so especially as sort of it takes place within the context of Naha, for example, what we do end up seeing is that, you know, kind of women who work outside of the household or outside of, of the space of the house um, are sort of viewed increasingly um, with suspicion. And they're oftentimes, if you're talking about the policing of sexuality, are sort of you know, kind of enter into like the the public discourse that we see in newspapers, for example, as sort of people and spaces of concern um, because they're not only working or they might be working, but they're working too joyously or, or you know, there is this fear that sort of like working together in the shared space um, might sort of um, make them difficult um, to manage, and in particular, difficult to, to sort of manage their their sexuality. So this stuff, you know, kind of comes really to the fore um, when we look at um, the papers of really the nineteen teens and nineteen twenties. Yeah, it's definitely underlying sort of colonial narrative in justification of the preservation policy. You know, where like time and time again you know why don't they get rid of preservation policy you know some reformers try to like get rid of it and they say oh you know people are not ready for it they're too too lazy they you know they don't want to they like old things they you know they don't adapt to new things and it seems like this is part of it right like they all oh, this lazy mm-hmm. sexually promiscuous Okinawan woman going about you know freely moving you know going beyond what what's prescribed by this customary law and um also comes down to the sort of question of social reproduction, right? How mm-hmm. how do we get these workers to be obedient and be, you know, sort of disciplined and uh, in a sort of like Foucauldian way, right? How do we make them show up to work every day and don't make any troubles, don't act freely, I guess. And, um, and you know, you do make a reference to Sylvia Friedrich's work on the witch hunt, right? How capitalism is quite far from liberating women right from the feudal constraints like uh has its own patriarchal mechanism to discipline and punish women mm-hmm. also as part of the primitive accumulation right that whole process of that so the richie talks about witch hunt but in okinawa it's, it's a it's a violent aspect to it as well yeah i'm trying to think about this um so I think I talk about Federici sort of in in the context of the um, stripping of um, property of women. In particular, I think I'm talking about um, Noro 
um, who used to sort of not only occupy an important place within sort of um, the religious political kind of milieu of the kingdom, but also had access to their own property. And that is, you know, very quickly, you know, in the process, you know, in the period of preservations um, stripped um, from them. Um, I think also we see sort of um, the way that within sort of all these conversations about Okinawa's um, impoverishment or the problem of Okinawa's impoverishment, what um, ends up getting taken up quite prominently is sort of the undue influence that kind of women mediums um, or, or Utah, I think, have within agrarian village societies. And so there's this idea that um, kind of these women are charging exorbitant amounts of money um, to spread superstition or or to sort of, and, and they sort of stand against or in opposition to the economic rationality that is necessary in order to have like a healthy functioning agrarian village society. And so they're kind of blamed um, for the problems um, that the Okinawan economy is, you know, kind of is having, especially beginning in the 1920s. And all of that sort of is is a way to really sort of deflect um, the structural kind of um, problems, both kind of the structural problems of the Okinawan economy, but but also the fact that, you know, a lot of agrarian villages in Japan are under conditions of severe impoverishment in the 1920s. Like this is not like unique to Okinawa, but it's sort of seen as a uniquely Okinawan issue that's tied directly to um, the undue influence that, you know, these these women have, which is a reflection of the general kind of irrationality of Okinawan people, right? That they're not really modern subjects who know how to manage their their own sort of time and money and all that stuff. Um, So we definitely see that. One of the things that I wasn't able to do but I was really interested in actually doing was to think about um, the way that just kind of the sort of annexation of the UK kingdom actually um, impacted the relationship between sort of um, Okinawan women to property. You know, that's something that I think is what is suggested as an analysis if we take Federici seriously. But, you know, it's really hard to to do that in large part because um, it's really hard to act like there, you know, in terms of like materials that I could even use to think through this question in terms of just like property records or, you know, like things like that. It's very, very hard to access um, in the pre-war period. So I wasn't able to do that, but if I could, um, that would be the kind of analysis that I'd really like to do. Yeah, to see how kind of, um, you know, kind of the ways that dispossession actually took place um, along gendered lines. Um, Speaking of dispossession, I want us to talk about the question of uh, migration and 
as capitalism made uh, gradual inroads into Okinawa and uh, sort of agrarian impoverishment, as well as struggles intensified, uh, more and more Okinawans uh, traveled abroad uh, for work and formed vibrant diasporic communities in and out of Japan. Uh, you referred earlier to women textile workers going to mainland Japan to work. And these communities continue to exist to this day. But in the interwar period, uh, some of these migrants were exposed to Marxism and became radicalized. Can you tell us about the history of Okinawa migrant workers and their struggle, as well as their relationship with the struggles inside Okinawa? Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to have a single sort of analysis here because the experiences I think were so varied depending on region and sort of time period um, that people migrated. Um, and I do give sort of like one brief example of the way that sort of radicalization in one place was tied to radicalization in another place. And that's sort of in the last chapter of the book. Um, and that really sort of um, follows, I think, or depends on the work of people, you know, like Tomiyama Ichiro, who showed the close relationship between those who went to the Kansai region and um, became involved in labor organizing there, um, who, you know, kind of established Marxist and I think to some extent anarchist study groups and then came back in order to try to aid um, or support um, organizing that was happening in Okinawa. And so that was sort of like a lot of, I, I don't dwell on that, but I think a lot of that, like that insight really comes from the work of, of people like Tomiyama who talked about sort of the formation of Okinawa Kenjinkai and Kansai. And then also um, somebody like Ania Masaki who wrote um, kind of, the book was Okinawa no Musanundo, proletarian movement, movements in Okinawa, um, who really writes about um, all of these ties, right? A lot of Okinawan intellectuals, like later radicals, you know, had experience, um, you know, kind of going to school in Tokyo or something. And then, and, you know, ended up kind of like also working in, you know, kind of factories in Kansai or Kanto, um, became labor organizers, and then sort of came back to Okinawa. Um, and um, memoirs as well, like Yambaru no Hi, um, really outlined these relationships um, a lot more clearly, I think, than, than I could do, because that's really just not the focus of my work. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of work that sort of could probably use some synthesizing um, that, that talks about these relationships. Um, there's also, you know, from a very different context, context, sorry, um, you have like scholars who, you know, were, were part of um, UH Manoa's ethnic studies program, who wrote, um, who compiled sort of um, texts like Uchinanju Diaspora, um, and did oral history projects that really sort of talk about the relationships between sort of people who became activists and organizers in a place like Hawaii, then sort of had relationships to intellectuals and organizers in Okinawa. Um, I think, I mean, it's kind of not really the question you're asking because, you know, they're not 
all talking about like radical <laughs> like organizing right um but um i think like is it like george oshiro wrote a little bit about um the relationship between sort of um okinawan um, organizers publishers of radical kind of like newspapers in hawaii um, and their relationships to somebody like Ihofuyu who, you know, kind of is, for me, I think he's one of these bourgeois intellectuals, but Oshiro says that he had sort of the closest thing to what we might call his like Marxist moment, right? Um, when he visited Hawaii in the late 1920s. And so we have works like that. Um, Edith Kaneshiro writes about um, Okinawan migrant workers in the Philippines in that same volume. And then we have like um, a scholar named Yushi Yamazaki writes extensively about the formation of radical Japanese American, I think, organizations in LA, which included a lot of Okinawans um, in, in his dissertation from 2015. And so there's quite a bit of work um, on this that is like much more than what I could say. Um, one thing that I find to be really interesting in relation to this question is some work that the late historian, um, I don't know if you know, um, Yakabi Osamu, but he wrote a collection of essays. I'm still reading it right now, but, um, it's this, this book, um, it's called Okinawa Sen. Begun Sendyoshio Manabinao. So it's a 2009 work. Um, but in that book, or in this sort of collection of essays, he's really trying to think through the relationship between the experiences of migration or immigration um, of Okinawan people and the stances they took within the Battle of Okinawa in the context of, you know, what he calls forced, um, I think, forced group suicide. So Shudan Jiketsu is what he's trying to think through. And one of the things that he sort of says is that, you know, when we're thinking about different outcomes in relation to this question of Shudan Jiketsu, right, that we can see through testimonies of survivors, he says that you have sort of folks who became sort of predisposed to the idea that Shudan Jiketsu was the right thing to do. And then people who said, no, we're not, we don't want to do that. Like we want to live. Right. And what he does is he says that, you know, there is, he is able to see a tendency where sort of the answer to like the question of what to do in the battle of Okinawa and this like life or death situation was to engage in um, shudan jiketsu where people who had wartime experiences who are from Okinawa who had wartime experiences as soldiers or nurses in China or in the Pacific and then he says that in contrast to that people who sort of took a different path um actually um, had experiences um, as migrant workers in places like the Philippines and in Hawaii. 
And so he's doing this really interesting thing where he's sort of trying to say that these earlier experiences of people abroad, um, but in very, very different positions, right? Either as like agents of, you know, like as sort of representatives of the military um, in China and in the Pacific versus people who were migrant workers in the Philippines and Hawaii had very, had came up with very, very different answers to what to do when they were like, you know, literally in caves hiding (laughs) from, you know, U.S. troops. And I think what he's trying to do there is he's trying to sort of like insert the question of complicity even in sort of this condition that all of us would probably say, this is like the sort of extreme, right? Sort of culmination of victimization of Okinawans in the battle of Okinawa. And he's saying, well, yes, but we should also engage the question of complicity and how that actually impacts outcomes and how it's important to not just think about um, victimization Victimhood, right? But to also think about sort of Okinawans as also being sort of perpetrators of, you know, aggression in the context of Asia Pacific. And I don't know, I just, I just thought it was very interesting that he's trying to sort of draw distinction between sort of migrant workers um, and their ability, I don't know, it's so weird, right? Their ability to like negotiate um, circumstances for survival. And then people that he calls sort of agents of of Japanese um, militarism, Okinawan, both Okinawan, um, who then sort of take the path of forced group suicide. Um, This kind of moves far away from your question of Marxism, But I think sort of all this just to say that the sort of question of immigrant experience um, and, you know, becomes a really important one for people who are thinking not just about the constitution of some kind of like Uchinanju diaspora, but also for people who are thinking about complex questions of complicity and victimhood um, in the Battle of Okinawa. There's like so much more to say in terms of the constitution of diaspora and how it ties into um, or or how sort of people's experiences outside of the territory of Okinawa then sort of refract back onto politics within Okinawa that I can talk about more. But um, just all that to say that I found that piece um, by Yakabi to be really really interesting. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. It sounds like a really interesting book. I'd love to read it. But um, I I guess, like, you know, it doesn't really change that whole forced suicide is, you know, it's it's an extremely tragic event and, you know, messed up sort of, uh, uh, sort of just shows the depravity of fascism. Uh, But it is sort of interesting to think of it as like, you know, like sort of ideological aspect of the fascism, right? It's not necessarily a sort of like top-down process of like um, this extremely autocratic state forcing innocent citizens to sort of violent instances of domination, but also there's like manufactured consent and how 
sort of different uh, groups, if not classes of people. It sounds like there's sort of like a latent, uh, subtle class analysis happening in in this author's work, right? Like maybe people who are, uh, people who acted as agents of Japanese imperialism versus people who come from more a sort of working class background, more proletarianized. Um, I don't know if that's what this author is getting at, but it is sort of interesting to think of this contradiction in, in, in different responses of these groups of people to this event. Yeah, I don't know about, I don't know about that last part just because, um, well, I, I don't think he, he is interested in a class analysis, you know, just because at least in this case, right? Because if he were, I think he would have told us, um, you know, because by the time we get to the 1940s, right? Um, and we're talking about sort of Philippines or Hawaii and um, the sort of class position of Okinawans within those societies. I don't think it's the same as what it was when, you know, the first generation left, um, you know, in the 1890s or, or something like that. And so I think there may be, you know, kind of a relative degree of success um, at the point that people are coming back. I'm not sure. Um, but it, it's sort of not central to his analysis, but I do think, and, you know, the people who are, you know, being conscripted um, to to China or to, to the Pacific. Um, yeah, I don't know what those, what those demographics are or what that class composition is either. So I don't think he's that interested in that at this point, but I do think that... Um, your question actually raises an important point that we should think about, which is that, you know, when we talk about um, the history of Okinawan migrant workers and sort of their struggles and what those struggles look like within the context of these, these places, right? Whether it's Hawaii or California or Brazil or, you know, wherever. Um, I think that one of the things that is probably under analyzed um, within sort of the existing scholarship is the sort of class position that um, those communities come to occupy within those sites. Um, there's a little bit of that, I think, um, when we talk about sort of Kaneshiro's work on the Philippines. Um, but largely, you know, the, the conversation has really sort of tended to focus on Okinawan people's um, experiences in these places vis-a-vis um, Japanese, the dominant sort of Japanese community. I think that we can do a lot more there as well mm -hmm. to think about people's um, position as, yes, migrant workers, and what, what do we call them? Are they settlers? If so, how do we grapple with that as well? Mm -hmm. I mean, you do also refer to sort of the conflict in within diaspora about sort of identity of, uh, you know, the nationalist ideology within the diaspora, right? Like, so Kenjinkai, like some, I think you refer to case in, in the Philippines where some Okinawan migrants are seen as like not uh, sort of like model. Not qualified. No, yeah. well, like kind of like model minorities, right? They're not really behaving in the way that they should be. So they're kind of shamed and, um, that do that sort of suggests sort of mm -hmm. prominence of the bourgeois ideology in that in a struggle 
intra-community struggle around that. Um, mm-hmm. Who is Okinawan, right? Like who is qualified to become at least a kind of model uh, minority in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's uh, a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. And you do also refer to this poet in the in the conclusion. Yeah, Kushifusako. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Can you maybe tell us about her story a bit? Yeah. So again, here with Kushifusako, um, I think Katsukata Keiko's work is really important in thinking about Kushifusako. Um, but the reason why I bring her up in the epilogue is because I sort of see her as one of the very few um, writers in the period that I take up who really engage in a critique of the sort of assimilatory um, kind of strategy um, that um, many other sort of Okinawan intellectuals, um, politicians, cultural producers um, kind of take on. And basically what she's doing is she is, um, you know, she, she writes a short story and she sort of points out the um, futility of trying to, I guess, become Japanese, right? Um, in, in actually resolving um, what she sees as a really big problem. Um, or, or not a big problem, but one of the the sort of um, tragedies, I think, of the lives of people from Okinawa in this time period. Um, she brings up um, this figure, right, of the Okinawan woman or the grandmother who's not able to um, really leave her hometown because of the tattoos, the very visible tattoos that she has on her hands. And um, she talks about the way that she's become demonized or not demonized. um, Well, I guess demonized, um, seen as barbaric, right? Or seen as sort of shameful um, as a result of all of these kinds of reformist campaigns to clean up Okinawan customs and morals. And the tattoos are a really big aspect of that sort of policy. And what Kushi is basically doing is she's saying that um, no matter what kind of striving (laughs) um, to become a proper Japanese subject that one does, um, that's not going to ever sort of resolve this question of this woman not being able to to visit her children. And she uses that as sort of a, a way to talk about the futility of, you know, kind of of Okinawan efforts at assimilation. And it sort of provokes a huge response um, by these organizations. I think Dome is one of them, which is basically telling her to not air their her dirty business, like <laughs> their dirty business, right, in public, because it's really sort of undoing all of the efforts that they had been making in order to gain acceptance. Um, you know, vis-a-vis Japanese society. And so she sort of um, writes her counter response. And then for as far as I know, she doesn't write, um, you know, short stories again. So that's sort of the end of her work. Um, And then I think that um, the way that I end is really to just say that perhaps she would have been 
she probably felt very isolated and alone in that critique. Um, however, you know, if we take a look at um, all of these struggles that I um, narrate in the book, you see that there are other people, right, um, who maybe didn't use that language, but who were also casting doubt on this um, kind of, yeah, I guess it's it's the assimilatory mode um, that, that does become the hegemonic one um, within Okinawan intellectual spheres in the pre-war period. Yeah, so it's kind of like a at the very end of your book, kind of beautiful moment of like bringing, even though she was not really part of this broader social struggles, her poetry does sort of bring up the the lack of connection between these desperate struggles, you know, and suggest what the history could have been, right? Like if these old people came together and form a bigger movement in her own stories, uh, it is a sort of tragic story, but also sort of like, has a really powerful uh, symbolic resonance to what you talked about in the so in the rest of your book. Yeah, and I think actually, you know, I, I probably misspoke. She's not the only one. So um, even so, speaking of poets, like Yamana Kuchibaku was also somebody who maybe not as directly, right, but was also very, very or problematized, right, sort of where this sort of strategy takes us. Right. So he, he also um, kind of expressed that in his in his poetry. Um, and I guess it does sort of nicely sort of connect back to the earlier question. And, you know, these people are writing in many ways outside of Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it is that um, they're really sort of starting to feel um their alienation you know especially as they move outside and begin to really sort of experience um the way that no matter what right like they they do um you know they're sort of writing in japanese right they're you know living in tokyo they're kind of doing all the things perhaps um that they should be doing they're really getting recognized by the Tokyo literary establishment in terms of like where their pieces are being published, but at the same time, um, feeling just very different, right? Feeling um, alienation that is not just about living in Tokyo, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but but is, is about sort of um, feeling the impossibility of, of acceptance um, within that society. So that sort of leads them to to really sort of write these texts um, whose themes maybe don't get picked up and aren't sort of synthesized into a counter hegemonic discourse in that moment, but um, nonetheless are there and become part of the really important part of the like Okinawan literary corpus later on yeah that's sort of what i wanted to get at in my earlier question about culture and custom as well like you know this preservation of old customs policy was sort of um you know this sort of the cultural strategy of the ruling class of the ruling elite or japanese monopoly capital and their collaborators inside okinawa uh, elite sort of their their attempt at varying attempts at preserve 
the uh, feudal culture or sort of this sort of the moralizing bourgeois modernizing discourse or like there's definitely a sort of like it does so sort of tell us about the, the the role of culture and the class struggles right and the peasants and uh workers and migrants are really sort of waging their own form of cultural production uh from below not from above that like the, the preservation policy try to do so i think it's one aspect of your work that really fascinates me is that sort of yeah culture as the field of uh, class struggles yeah I've, I've actually not thought about my work that way but um just thinking about um i guess kind of what i'm trying to to do is, um, you know, one of the things is that that sort of I've grappled with is, okay, so I'm interested, right? Like I'm, I'm like committed to this idea of um, locating like points of antagonism as part and parcel of, you know, this thing that we call like history, right? Whatever. Um, however, it felt as though, especially when I was looking at the pre-war period, it felt as though the, the topic, right? Or, or sort of like what everything that could be done within the context of like labor history, you know, had already been done. And not because, you know, and, and partly because there's just kind of like, we're dealing with a real, I don't know, like, lack of documentation right so like there's like not a lot of stuff um that we can find um in order to sort of like go over or tread over some of these um conflicts that people like anya have already sort of talked about however right at the same time um like that can't be it it was, was sort of my sense, right? There's, there's always conflict. There's always antagonism. There's always sort of, um, you know, kind of anti-capitalist struggle when you have capitalism. Um, and so the question was, where do I locate it? And is there a way that I can talk about it in ways that um, don't get me to the conclusion that there was no organized, significant, or meaningful organized class struggle in Okinawa, right? Um, and so because of that, um, or, or sort of, and sort of in that context, right? The reason why there isn't is because there wasn't really the kind of politicization that would be necessary to have this kind of organized class struggle, right? Like that's sort of like the logical sort of um, kind of understanding. And I didn't want to replicate that. Um, and so this is where, a sort of a different sort of practice of reading became necessary. And so, for example, right, like, I don't know if I use the word social reproduction, but struggles over social reproduction, right, in, in this book um, was, was one place where we could sort of still talk about um, antagonism, um, even sort of like peasant struggles, right? Um, like, this isn't sort of a, the Japanese, or sort of Okinawan, agrarian space was not a completely proletarianized space. So we're not talking primarily about tenant farmer struggles, um, but still like what could we sort of find um, as sort of points of antagonism or anti-capitalist struggle amongst, you know, kind of small producers who are considered quite conservative, right? If we're talking about the political spectrum 
but what can we find? Like, what were they doing? Um, and then, you know, how do we not give meaning, but sort of inject meaning back into um, things that might be considered um, not that meaningful in terms of an anti-capitalist struggle? For example, this question of, of like not selling, right? Or this question of withdrawing um, or this question of, um, so this is not in this book, right? But in, in a different sort of piece that I write, like how do we think about the insistence that the amount that the US military government is offering for the compensation of tombs is like not adequate at all as compensation. Um, how do we understand that as sort of a fight, not just sort of against this line item, right, in the military budget, but as a fight, um, you know, for this sort of like entire worldview um, that is under attack? And I guess that sort of becomes, maybe we can translate that as a question of culture, um, but a question of, of culture as not something that is has been fetishized, right? As sort of Okinawan culture by first the Japanese and then by the Americans, um, but it's something that has everything to do with the protection of certain kinds of social relations, certain kinds of relationships to the land or to the water, um, that are really integral to um, the ability of these communities to survive or to sort of maintain their sort of understandings of abundance. These are, I think, the kinds of things that I try to pick up, um, especially in the absence of kind of more dramatic moments of like collective organized organized struggle yeah that's a that's it's really interesting so yeah you mentioned a little bit uh we talked about the um, experience of migration of okinawans sort of influenced their decision about their role in the the forced suicide either rejection or complicity right and that's sort of like the experience of wartime mobilization but you also refer to in your conclusion that um, they became, you know, there's this discourse that the Okinawans sort of became the models of, uh, you know, sort of obedient citizen under Japanese fascism. And, you know, they're the most betrayed at the war's end for that reason. Um, and you question that discourse. Can you tell us about sort of how sort of continuity, both change and continuity, you know, between the pre-war era and what happened during the the war, you know, through the the wartime mobilization? Sure. Um, I think that a lot of uh, Okinawan scholars have talked about or addressed this question. Um, and one of the things that they note, so for example, the sort of line of people, um, including like Arasaki Moriteru to Okamoto Keidoku to, um, 
even uh, more recently, Yakabi Osamu have have all sort of talked about the way that the question of um, continuity and change, or pre-war, wartime, post-war, this sort of periodization um, has to be thought of differently when we're talking about Okinawa in comparison to the way that even Japanese intellectuals uh, talk about Okinawa. And so the idea that this kind of framing is really inadequate for capturing the kind of continuous and overlapping conditions of um, subordination. So I say subordination because not all of them use the word colonization, even though I would use the word colonization. Um, but basically this idea um, that it's really sort of inadequate to think about Okinawan history according to the sort of framework or the the sort of um, well the chronological framing that is mainstream in Japanese historiography. Um, I guess what I would like to say with regards to the question of um, kind of important continuities I think have to do or the, the thing that like I contribute as opposed to other folks who contribute other things, um, is that I'm really interested in thinking about the way that um, the kinds of enclosures that are enabled by the Japanese kind of legal regime in Okinawa that are, are sort of taken on and continued by the U.S. occupation forces. So even though we can say things like, you know, the sort of, at least on Okinawa Island, like everything was basically destroyed, at least in the central and southern parts of the island as a result of the Battle of Okinawa, um, it is also true that despite the fact that there were a lot of things that were destroyed, um, the U.S. came in and was able to sort of very quickly um, build infrastructure, um, both military and non-military infrastructure on the islands, not only through kind of, you know, force, um, but also by sort of using a lot of the information as well as sort of, you know, like land certificates and things like that titles. Um, that were um, compiled during the, the Japanese period. And so it's really important for me to think about the way that like one system then sort of enables the next or facilitates the next, even though it's impossible really to compare the two, um, the two colonial structures. I was yeah I was reading your piece on the Viewpoint magazine uh, called "The Normal and Exceptional Forms of Enclosure mm -hmm. in Okinawa, Going Beyond the So-Called Base Program," and you challenged the, the narrative, including some analysis by Marxists of like exceptional nature of the the military presence in Okinawa, but you point to sort of like more normalized aspect of like more subtle everyday forms of capitalism in Okinawa through various institutions. Maybe you can tell us about 
what this like sort of normal form of enclosure is in some of the examples? Sure. Yeah, I think this is a really complicated um, kind of problem or question. So um, one thing that I was thinking about as I was writing this piece or thinking about sort of how to craft this piece out of a longer piece I was working on um, was there was a scene um, in one of um, Ikamichiya's documentaries where there was an activist, um, sort of an anti-base activist, I think in Takai, who um, sort of had a job, right? Like his sort of like main job um, was as a land surveyor. And, you know, he didn't really see any contradiction in sort of his his sort of anti-base activism and the fact that he was a land surveyor. Um, and I was sort of, I saw that scene as I was sort of reading, um, you know, kind of work about the, the way that the uh, Army Corps of Engineers was very involved in, um, you know, a lot of the kind of surveying work um, in Okinawa and in other places in the world that then sort of enabled or provided the information in order to legitimate um, kind of further enclosure. Right. So I was kind of trying to think through um, the, the the position of this kind of person, um, not in order to like expose a contradiction or not in order to, to sort of like say that you're complicit too, but just to sort of think about the way that some some things or some sort of structures are so normalized and don't become sort of the targets of critique, whereas this sort of base, right, is is sort of the immediate kind of emergency. And I was just kind of trying to think through that question and think about the way that um, sort of the, the sort of framing of the, the base as sort of an exception, even sort of by use car or something, right? Um, mostly, um, you know, kind of as temporary. While at the same time, um, you know, this entity, as well as sort of what happens after reversion, right? Sort of the private property regime is never actually uh, contested. And so I was just trying to think through how these two sort of things go hand in hand um, at the same time. And where it gets complicated is that as I was sort of like thinking through that question, um, I was having a conversation this was a while back with a scholar um, by the name of uh, Nagahara Yutaka, who works a lot on Unokozo. Um, he's, he's a theorist or somebody who really informed a lot of my work. And um, we were talking about the sort of post-Price Commission like settlements with regards to the the yearly payments on leases on military lands in Okinawa. And what was really memorable about what he said was that he was thinking about sort of the ability of these small landowners um, to extract very high rents was a victory or an outcome of the struggle. And I was just trying to think about that. Like, what does that mean, right? Um, because for me, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, okay, but it was really hard for me to see this as a victory because it seemed to be sort of further entrenching. Um, 
a system um, really of private property, right? Um, so I was trying to think through that and I was trying to sort of think about that as it played out historically. And so that's what I do a little bit of narrating in the piece. I do it a little bit more um, in other pieces um, that I've written for physicians and for the Journal of Historical Sociology. Um, but the argument I think that comes out in those pieces um, is that if we sort of don't think about the outcome and if we think about sort of the process that unfolds in Okinawa in terms of what culminates in sort of the debates and arguments around whether or not to accept the military's offer of lump sum payments or not. If we say to take a look at the process, what we see is that um, on the one hand, there is never really a, a very strong contestation in terms of like, we want to overthrow this this private property regime, right? Like that's not really possible. I don't think within this political climate, which is extremely anti-communist, you know, sort of Cold War sort of moment, um, and would it be viable, right? If we're talking about um, a representative of the government of the Ryukyu Islands, because people have been punished for that kind of statement earlier in the 50s. But what does happen is we do see um, the way that various actors, including the head of the GRI, which I talk about, but also um, people in Iejima and Isahama who are actually fighting against um, their eviction from their lands, what we see is that there is sort of a way that they are really trying to refuse or reject the military's calculation of their land values by saying that that calculation um, doesn't reflect the realities of sort of their lives, including kind of what it means to be able to reproduce their lives generationally um, under the conditions that exist in Okinawa at the present. So they're really doing a very sophisticated analysis there um, that yeah. just sort of points out that what the military has calculated is simply wrong. Um, so I found that to be quite interesting. And then that resonates um, with a lot of people um, who do also question, okay, why is it, right, that the valuation of tombs, for example, is like almost nothing, even though tombs are so important um, for the maintenance of not just sort of community well both well it's kinship and community but also these were kind of the spaces that allowed us to survive during the battle of okinawa right why is it that you know compensation for other sort of structures that are so-called not productive so low even though for us right it's sort of indispensable to our survival and a lot of that the reason why that resonates with a lot of people is because 
of shared sort of current conditions, but also I think shared um, kind of memories of and experiences of what it meant to survive both um, sort of pre-war conditions as well as wartime conditions. Yeah, you also refer to sort of uh, a formal coalition politics uh, emerging, you know, in resistance to this this scheme of the U.S. occupation to basically monetize everything, you know, in this regard or the sort of non-material relations and kinship and communities and what have you. But you do discuss sort of the blind spot of this coalition politics, and that sort of made me think that there is some continuity between what you argue in the limits of Okinawa and uh, you know what was happening under the, the US occupation you know through this coalition uh can you tell us about sort of the complexities and contradictions of this uh resistance okay i don't know if this is what you're getting at but one of the things that i problematize or or sort of i think requires maybe further um exploration uh, which I haven't done yet. So this is just sort of um, kind of what more needs to be done um, sort of in, in thinking about this question is kind of thinking with the works of people like, you know, Ariko Ikehara or Anmir Shimabuku, um, who really sort of um, talk about the kind of way that oftentimes, like the category of Okinawa, um, when sort of mobilized in, in historical analysis or whatever, um, doesn't account adequately for the heterogeneity of what that sort of concept might include or who it might include. Um, and I think especially when we're talking about um, the 50s onward, and we're talking about struggles that are meant to um, uphold or preserve some sort of version of a community. I think that what both of them have critiqued is the way that that, um, that sort of vision might not include, um, let's say um, mixed race folks, for example, or um, people who are sort of for various reasons, right? Um, not included in that category of Okinawa um, that has to do um, with the presence of, yeah, like US um, occupation forces, Filipino occupation forces, other workers, um, non-military workers that sort of arrive in Okinawa, um, especially, but not limited to the post-war period. And so the idea of, you know, talking about kind of um, like water is life or the idea of land being nourishing for a thousand years or something like that. These sort of slogans um, that do become really powerful for mobilizing people to the Isahama or, you know, Iejima struggles. Um, we have to sort of think very carefully about who's not included in those kinds of definitions of community. So I think for me, that's the biggest um, concern. Um, and it sort of comes through um, because when you read a lot of 
the local kind of wartime histories, for example, or compilations um, in the various like municipal histories, um, interviews with people who live through the battle and live through, you know, kind of like the early part of the occupation. There are a noticeable, not like many, but noticeable um, sort of, I guess, like statements that are not only kind of expressive of a fear of soldiers like u.s soldiers um but are also like i guess i would say anti-black and so i think like that's something that has to be reckoned with as we sort of especially as um we take seriously these struggles um that that do erupt or you know kind of get organized in the 50s yeah the presence of black gis in okinawa is yeah it's a it's it's kind of complicated as well like uh set shigematsu and i discussed that this film uh woman reboot film uh extreme private eros and you know this (laughs) (laughs) this protagonist one of the, the activists is like oh i really want a black baby you know kind of really sort of very racialized fetishization of blackness and uh i mean even just the japanese okinawan dynamic right like most of these activists are japanese and they're sort of kind of moving there and setting up communes there you know there's kind of awkward colonial dynamic there as well but also like um as documented in uh in okinawa the afterburn a documentary like there's concrete practical solidarity uh with black gi some of them were like you know revolutionaries you know like the black power activists so yeah it is sort of like really uh uh yeah sort of complicated legacy there and overall i think the sort of global aspect of this that you allude to in this piece is also interesting as well like the very reason that uh, the u.s occupation was no longer temporarily was that uh the Chinese communists were winning. Their victory was imminent, so that really scared them. And you know, that maybe changed their mind. You know that oh, we have to actually stay here permanently to turn this place into part of the Keystone and sort of anti-communist bastion. And uh, near the end of the piece, you also referred to sort of like this really important acknowledgement of like presence of the U.S. military across the Pacific and you know other parts of the world, like on these islands, you know, Hawaii, Guam, elsewhere, you know, sort of like that really sort of like was Okinawa, the base problem is often sort of seen as a Japanese problem, right? Like even by the Japanese left, you know, uh, and this sort of kind of the dynamic. I was there, I was in Hinoko myself in 2017 and, you know, I went to the blockade and sit-ins and stuff. I observed it. You know, there are a lot of Japanese activists who travel there. You know, I actually uh, was hanging out with this one guy, like older guy who sort of was really kind enough to drive, drive me around. We stayed in the same hostel and, you know, he took me around and, you know, he really told me about uh, sort of the history of the struggle struggle there. But he's, you know, he's from Shizuoka, you know, he's very like, it's sort of, his politics is very typical, sort of like the kind of post-war democracy, sort of like pro-Article 9 kind of, you know, that's where he's coming from politically, you know. Um, 
I mean, there's also this perception among the, the, the far right, you know, the, all these anti-based activists, uh, like outsiders, which is also not true. Like there's, you know, there's various actors involved, of course, not least of whom are Okinawans themselves, right? Like, so, you know, like really sort of uh, interesting dynamic there, right? Like um, historically, but also present to this day. Yeah, I think um, there's actually so much work to be done in terms of thinking about kind of the development of those kinds of connections, um, transnational sort of um, connections and solidarities, especially amongst um, like activists, right? So we do have some idea of that because um, activists have talked about it, um, you know, kind of especially when we're talking about, let's say like, you know, the Philippines and, and Okinawa um, around questions of sexual violence and the military, for example, right? Like. Um, like Takazato Suzu has talked about about sort of those connections. Other people have too, um, but it would be really interesting. And maybe somebody has worked on it, right? But to sort of draw out or think about um, the the development of those types of things earlier on, um, I think that I haven't done any work on this, so you know it's not really my area. But even just taking a cursory glance at this i don't know this english language kind of lefty magazine called ampo um you know of the late 60s through the 80s i think you can see that the the framing or the sort of the placement of okinawa is always in a global frame it's not a okinawa japan kind of dynamic it's not even an okinawa east asia kind of dynamic right which is where much of the scholarship now is right so trying to think about like okinawa in relation to jeju for example um but if we take a look at some of these um publications from the late 60s we see that you know sort of okinawa you know palau um the philippines um yeah and korea um you know that sort of positioning is happening quite deliberately and then if you add in i guess um the work of somebody like gerald horn who's talked about um the development of worker struggles in Hawaii that does sort of distinguish between Okinawan sort of activists and Japanese, right? And really deliberately distinguishes those sorts of groups. Um, we, we might be able to then also sort of connect that work um, to, to other sorts of um, labor struggles. Or, or connect sort of, you know, kind of Okinawan labor struggles to labor struggles that are going on elsewhere. The only sort of material that that I have looked at so far um, is is not ideal um, because it's sort of, it's the more kind of like um, kind of U.S. oriented um, the the ICFTU, right? So it's not the like radical <laughs> radical sort of wing of the the international labor movement. Um, but even there, we can see that, you know, Okinawa is being framed in global terms. And it, it's sort of all there. It's just maybe hasn't sort of been prioritized in academic writing. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And um, I think that's sort of bringing us to the close to the end of this prolonged uh, multiple <laughs> sittings <laughs> of a conversation. Um, thank you so much, Wendy, for sitting down with me and um, telling us about your work on Okinawa. Before you go, can you tell us about uh, what you're working on currently? You mentioned it a little bit in the beginning of the interview, but sort of your upcoming, you know, you're, you were working on the manuscript of the, your, your next book. Maybe you can tell us a little about that as well as where uh, people listening to the show can find your work and can find you online. Sure. So I just submitted a manuscript. Um like a final final ish version of a manuscript um which is for now called waiting for the cool moon subterranean struggles in the heart of the japanese empire and what it does or hopefully what it does is um it really talks about the way that the sort of colonial um has existed and has been in, invisibilized um, in our analyses of the Japanese countryside, um, which is that one of the things that the Japanese state did very well in sort of the interwar period is it sort of reconfigured um, the Japanese countryside in ways that I think necessitated um, colonial labor, but at the same time disavowed it. So, and and what I'm doing is I'm kind of not just saying that, but I'm trying to sort of write about the ways that different groups of actors um, kind of called that out um, and, and sort of mounted struggles against the Japanese state's policies, primarily sort of, kind of post-World War One through the, the early 1930s. And my work, I don't know where I can find my work. I guess I have a university department website, <laughs> but I don't think it's that updated. I don't know. You can just Google Scholar my work, I guess. I don't have a website or anything. Okay, that's great. I'm really looking forward to your next work. That sounds really fascinating. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Wendy, and uh, yeah, all the best. Thank you. See you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Against Japanism podcast. And my patrons who make this project possible. Magni, Shiori Nakaya, Waver, Christy Lin, Mountain Echo 11, Joma, Drew Harrison, Sean S. Aiden and Andy. Thank you all so much. See you next time.